What eye has not seen, nor has the ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. You know who said that? The Apostle Paul said that. And he was quoting the prophet Isaiah. And what that means is that the universal testimony of the Bible in both the Old and New Testament is that the best is yet to come. That things will not always be as they are now. That God has a plan. That he rules over all. That he will save his people. He will destroy the wicked. And he will, with indisputable sovereign power, win it all in the end when King Jesus arrives and builds his invincible kingdom on this very planet. That is the plan. That is the best that's yet to come. Because you understand, there once was a once upon a time at the beginning, there will be a happily ever after at the end, and included in that happily ever after are among the following. Satan will be banished. Paradise will be regained. Justice, true justice, will be restored on the earth. All the redeemed from all the ages will, will reign on the earth, never to sin or die again. The curse will be reversed. Creation will be renewed. Paradise will be restored. The Nations will be redeemed. Friends and family will be reunited. Sickness and pain will be removed. And all the elect will recline and dine at a table with all the saints from all the ages. That is the happily ever after. And yet there's a catch. Listen carefully. If you could have all of those innumerable blessings of the kingdom. But Christ were not there. Could you still be happy? Could you still be happy in the kingdom of Jesus Christ were not there ruling that kingdom? Because you understand that many professing Christians today would say, yes, actually. I could still be happy in the kingdom if Christ were not there. That's a problem. And the problem with that is that it misses the very point of the sovereign plan of God. Don't you see, without Christ at the center and the apex and the pinnacle of our pleasures and joys in the happy ever after, there is no happily ever after. Don't you see, beholding the king and the splendor of his beauty is the happy ever after in the plan of redemption. The most glorious glory at the top of the heap, what will forever entertain and exhilarate the minds and souls of the saints is to behold with our very own eyes the beauty of the king as he reigns on a throne. And that's exactly what Isaiah displays in our text this morning. That in the age to come, the Glory, greatest glory of the kingdom, that the, the pleasure of pleasures and the delight of all delights is to see and savor the king who will come and make things right in the world. And see, the reason why this is even on Isaiah's mind at all is because, you know, he and his people were in really serious trouble. They were in the middle of something brutal and fierce. They were, at this moment, haunted by their deepest fears imaginable. Their nightmares come true with literally nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. At this moment, you remember, their backs were against the wall as the armies of Assyria, 185,000 soldiers strong, were headed to Jerusalem, even as we speak. There's literally no way they're going to make it out of this alive. All of the promises of God seem to hang in the balance here. And yet, here comes the prophet Isaiah waltzing in, 
preaching a simple message of repentance and faith and trust in the sovereignty of God, and yet that simple message had at its very foundation the granite and steel of prophecy and eschatology. In other words, to give a hopeless people hope, to give a fearful people courage, to save the souls of an apostate people and bring them to their knees in repentance and faith. Isaiah gives them nothing less than staggering visions of the future and the great king, the Messiah, reigning on a throne. You see, that's what the book of Isaiah is. That's what the entire Bible is. Namely, a salvation saga of a sovereign savior who will come and single-handedly end the reign of terror in the world. And you see, that what's, that's what makes the happily ever after such a happily ever after, namely that a king will come. And not just any king, but a sovereign king, a glorious king, a majestic king, a king who himself will be the fulfillment of our deepest longings forever. You understand what makes the kingdom good news, what makes the gospel good news is that the culminating, crowning, uh, climactic reality of the future and the only pleasure with which our souls can be satisfied is to see and savor the king in his matchless beauty and towering supremacy. That's where we're going. That's what Isaiah shows us, and here is where we're going this morning. This morning, I want you to see three ways. Three ways that the goal and apex of the kingdom shapes and defines our lives in the present. Three ways that the goal and apex of the kingdom, which is to behold the king in his beauty, three ways that that shapes and defines our lives in the present. And the oracle comes in three parts, and this is all in your notes if you've got them. Part one is this, the doom pronounced upon Assyria and the world. The doom pronounced upon Assyria and the world. And now I know that you've just about had it, hearing about Assyria. You're done hearing about Assyria, I know. But at least you didn't have to live it. The nightmare that Assyria was, because that's exactly what they were. You have to appreciate the fact that the people of Judah just lived with this thing hanging over their heads for 30 years as the armies of Assyria worked their way west, devouring the Middle East. And you have to understand that the armies of Assyria coming to Jerusalem was all the Jews' fault. As a punishment for their sin and centuries of idolatry, Yahweh was directing the paths of Assyria's armies to Jerusalem even as we speak. It was just a matter of time, maybe weeks, maybe even days before the dogs of Assyria were howling at the gates. And they were coming with 185,000 soldiers, which is more people than even lived in Jerusalem itself. And so needless to say, they're never going to make it out of this alive. This is really, really serious because God is really, really furious, which is exactly why chapters 28 through 35 are commonly called the oracles of woe. The oracles of woe, which means a group of sermons that have as their distinguishing characteristic the ominous declaration, woe to you. Woe to you. That, that's how every one of these sermons begins. Woe to you. And you have to understand, every chapter since chapter 28, God has taken his people to the woodshed for their egregious sins, both past and present. And yet what you have to understand is that all of a sudden here in chapter 35, chapter 33, everything changes. Everything changes in chapter 33 because all of a sudden, instead of, instead of pronouncing a woe upon the people of Assyria, which he's done for the, or the people of Judah, which he's done for the last five chapters, all of a sudden he points the barrel of the gun at the nation of Assyria. And now all of a sudden, they get the woe. Which means the one who has been doing the destroying is about to be destroyed. Look at verse 1. I know your version might say, ah, 
but the word is woe. Woe to the destroyer. Although you have not been destroyed, and you who deal treacherously, although others have not dealt treacherously with you, when you are done destroying, you will be destroyed. And when you are finished dealing treacherously, others will deal treacherously with you. And there it is. Woe to you. Not a word, it's a sound. It's sort of like the, the rattle of a, of a cobra or, or the growl of a lion and definitely not the sound that you would ever want to hear directed to you because what it means is that the wrath and judgment of God is directed towards you and that there's no escape. And you notice that the object of woe, notice Isaiah calls them the destroyer. He, he calls them those who deal treacherously. Do you, do you see that? And that can only be Assyria. It has to be Assyria. The reason why is because the context demands it and because in chapter 16, verse 4, Isaiah called them by the exact same title and that's exactly what they were. You have to understand that the last 2,000 years, Assyria had devoted itself to destruction and war. These are a people whose specialty was wiping out other nations and plundering their cities. And yet you notice very carefully in verse 1 that their unresisted reign of terror in the ancient Near East was soon coming to an end. Look what Isaiah says. He says, woe to the destroyer. And that's it. The conversation is over. Assyria is done. It's just a matter of time. Look what Isaiah says. They who had not, they had not yet been destroyed. No one had ever dared challenge them or double-cross them. And yet notice the end of the verse. When you are done destroying, you will be destroyed. And when you are finished dealing treacherously, others will deal treacherously with you. And what that means is that the nation of Assyria was very soon about to get a taste of their own medicine. The undefeated heavyweight champion of the ancient Near East was very soon to meet their doom. And what you have to remember is that this is not new information to the people of Judah. It's not new. For the last 20 to 30 years since chapter 10, Isaiah has told them again and again, he has preached to them that God would intervene and save them from Assyria. That although the Jews did not deserve it in any way, that Yahweh would, just before the buzzer, at the last second, save them in a sovereign and supernatural way. And when we get to chapter 37, that's exactly what he does. And yet you have to appreciate the Jews' perspective. Before that actually happened, that seemed impossible. It, it sounded ridiculous that the greatest superpower the world had ever seen could be conquered and destroyed, especially to a secular, cold-hearted, unbelieving people like the people of Judah. There's just no way this is ever going to happen. Which means the people of Judah had a choice that they could make. They could live by faith, or they could live by fear, but they couldn't do both. Because you understand that fear is by its very nature unbelief and therefore incompatible with faith. Which is why Isaiah says what he does in verse 2. Look what he says. O Yahweh, be gracious to us. We are waiting for you. Be our strength. Literally, be our arm every morning be our salvation in time of distress do you see what this is do you see how this fits in the context verse 2 get this is how to pray and what to pray when the only thing you have to hang on to are the promises of God found in his word which is exactly the people of Judah all they had was God's promise through Isaiah that he would intervene and save them from Assyria, which on the surface was really, really hard to believe. And so do you see that Isaiah is equipping his people and us how to pray and what to pray when your faith is about to break? Have you ever been there? Are you there right now? 
Because the prayer to pray when fragile faith hangs by a slender thread is Yahweh. Be gracious to us. We are waiting for you. Be our strength every morning. Be our salvation in time of distress. In other words, when you are pushed to the brink and you are out of options, you plead this back to God. And mark my words, you pray this and he will answer you. He will answer this prayer if you dare pray it. Now, let me be clear. He might not and probably won't change your circumstances nor remove the object of pain or fear, but he will, by his grace, sustain your cracking faith and meet you in ways never before imagined. In other words, this is what to pray, to keep you from apostasy and to help what the word of God says to be enough for you. And my question for you is, is what God has spoken enough for you? Is, is the word of God, what he has revealed in his word, is that enough for you? Because we love things in writing, don't we? Can I get that in writing, please? Can I get it in writing? That the sovereign love of God is working in my life, that he is at work in my life, and that no matter what transpires now, that he will in the end raise me from the dead just as, this, uh, just as if I had never, ever died and bring me safely into the kingdom of his son. Can I please get that in writing? And here is the writing. An 800,000 word guarantee called the sacred text of Holy Scripture. But then, verses 3 through 6, Isaiah does that thing that prophets do. It's maddening and thrilling at the exact same time. Namely, he takes us through a wormhole of prophecy. In other words, without a hint or a moment's notice, Isaiah suddenly transports us into the future to see something global and massive coming at the end of the age. Starting in verse 3, look at the text. From the sound of the tumult, the peoples will flee. When you rise up, the nations will be scattered. Your plunder will be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar, like the horde of locusts they will seize upon it. Yahweh will be exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the faithfulness of your times, the wealth of salvation, wisdom and knowledge, and the fear of Yahweh will be their treasure. As you can tell, can't you, he... He's no longer talking about Assyria only, is he? Nor is he talking about the events of his own day. Rather, he is now describing something future and global when God intervenes in a way in history that he has not done before, at least since the flood. And you can totally tell that what Isaiah describes there in those verses is the future judgment of God on the nations of the world. Because look at the language, verse 3. There are peoples, there are nations running for their lives, fleeing like roaches in the sun. Why? Because of the sound of the tumult. Because God rises up from his throne. I mean, you understand that's wrath language. That's judgment language. There is coming a time appointed by God when he will respond to the evil atrocities of the world. Verse 4, he addresses the wicked nations as if they were sitting in front of him in the very room. Isaiah warns these nations, your plunder, nations, your plunder will be gathered. Like the gathering of the caterpillar, like hordes of locusts, they will seize upon it. Meaning what? Meaning this is the great reckoning at the end of history. When the score will be settled, when the nation's greed will be avenged, when justice will be served, like a plague of the locusts, the wicked, gluttonous nations of the world will lose everything they lied and killed and murdered to obtain. This is real, church. This is going to happen. So, so do you see what Isaiah's done here? It's a total, what we call, bait and switch, isn't it? He was just talking about Assyria in the present. 
And now all of a sudden he's talking about what God is going to do to all the nations at the end of the age. And you see the point, don't you? The point is to kindle faith in his people. Isaiah uses what God will do to Assyria in the present as a tiny little picture and foretaste of what he will do to all the nations at the end of the age. Do you see? And, and, and if that was hard to imagine or seemed impossible, it didn't compare to how unlikely it seemed in Isaiah's day that the people of Israel would ever repent and believe and be saved. And yet that's exactly what Isaiah portrays. Look at verses five and six. Here's how it's going down at the end of history for the people of Israel who were currently, are currently in sin and apostasy. Yahweh will be exalted for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the faithfulness of your times, the wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of Yahweh will be their treasure. I mean, you see what this is, don't you? One of the greatest revival in history. <laughs> because you know, well, Israel's relationship with Yahweh, that it was rocky to say the least, wasn't it? On again, off again, hot cold, love, hate, self-destructive, dysfunctional as, as Yahweh, as Israel constantly cheated on Yahweh with other lovers and again and again and again caught red-handed in the brothels of idolatry. And yet one day, one day, beloved, the nation Israel will finally get saved and reciprocate Yahweh's love and be reconciled to him as the treasure of their souls. That's exactly what verses 5 and 6 just predicted. Hey, look at the text. Yahweh will finally be exalted. He will finally be prized for the treasure that he is. Verse 5, he will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. Meaning what? What is Zion? Zion is Jerusalem. That's the literal city of Jerusalem. And it was not and has never been filled with justice and righteousness. But one day it will be. Because Isaiah 9 verses 6 and 7 say that that's exactly what's going to happen when the Messiah comes to claim his throne. Verse 6, here's the revival, speaking directly to Israel, listen carefully, and Yahweh will be the faithfulness of your times, the wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge, the fear of Yahweh will be their treasure. I mean, you understand, don't, don't you, that nothing in that verse has ever been true for the people of Israel at least for very long. They've never trusted his faithfulness. He's never been a, a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge to them. Zion, the people of Zion, Israel, has never feared Yahweh as their treasure ever, and yet one day they will do that. One day they will be the, uh, the zealous, holy, God-enthralled people that God chose and predestined them to be. And so, and so do, you, do you see what Isaiah is doing here in the text, what he's doing here in verses three through six, verses three through six, listen carefully, are a condensed, concentrated, chronological display of end times events. First comes wrath, then comes the kingdom. And you understand the whole point of this, why it's here, is to inject in their souls invincible hope and fearless faith. How? How would this do that? Don't, don't you see? If Israel could see the finish line of history coming at the end of the age, they could see the kingdom and see themselves in that future kingdom, then that would be the greatest assurance that God would keep his promise and save them from Assyria. Do you see? That's what eschatology is. That's what eschatology does. Namely, reinforce your heart with bulletproof steel so that you can face the terrors of the present. Which brings us to part two. Part two, the danger to come upon Israel and the world. The danger to come upon Israel and the world. And I don't want you to be confused here because you know that prophets reserve the rights to give their prophecies out of order, not chronologically. 
which is exactly what Isaiah does. Having just described Israel getting saved in verses 5 through 6, he now returns and expands on the scary conditions that they will need to be saved from. Do you see that? In other words, to really, truly appreciate the glory of their salvation, they had to really appreciate the horrors of the future danger that they needed to be saved from. Look at verses 7 through 12. Behold, the brave men will cry out in the streets. Messengers of peace will weep bitterly. The highways will be desolate. The one who passes along the way will cease. They have shattered the covenant. They have rejected the testimonies. They show no regard for man. The land will mourn and waste away. Lebanon will be ashamed. It will be infested literally with insects, it says. Sharon will be like the desert. Bashan and Carmel will dry out. Now I will arise, says Yahweh. Now I will be exalted. Now I will be lifted up. And then speaking to Israel and the nations, you will conceive dry grass. You will give birth to stubble. And my wind like fire will consume you. The peoples will be burnt to lime and the thorns cut down will be kindled in the fire. No one in the history of the world has ever picked verses 7 through 12 in Isaiah 33 to be their life verse. It's never been read ever at a wedding in history, maybe a funeral. But you have to understand, cryptic and mysterious though that text was, it all makes sense if you keep in mind that verses 7 through 12 are all depicting things to come in the future, not just upon Israel, but upon the whole world. And you understand the, the whole point of this, the whole reason why this was there in the text was to, was, to, was to give these people broken hearted repentance and idol crushing faith in Yahweh alone. Because believe it or not, it's not too late for them. It seemed like it was and soon it would be, but it is not too late yet there's still sand in the hourglass of God's patience. They don't have to face the firing squad of the fury of God if they would only repent. But should they refuse and repent and resist, here are a sample of the horrors to come. Look at verse 7. This is the introduction to the whole section here. Behold, their brave men will cry out in the streets. Messengers of peace will weep bitterly. Who is he talking about here? Well, you notice that brave men and messengers of peace, those are equivalent. Those are parallel. And what do they do? What will they do? But cry out in the streets and weep with bitter tears. Why? Because, because of all the things that verses 8 through 12 describe. All the things the prophets predicted. All the things the preachers will proclaim that the people of today mock and scoff and jeer and make fun of will be real. These are people who hedge their bets, who cross their fingers and say, everything's going to be fine. It's going to be just fine. And they will wake up all of a sudden to a world coming apart at the seams. It's exactly what Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians 5, isn't it? When he talks about people that they say peace and safety. Peace and safety, and yet you know that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When they say peace and safety, then all of a sudden destruction will come upon them. Like the pains of a woman in labor, and they will not escape. That's what this is. Although they'll try to escape. Verse 8, the freeways will be desolate. The roads will be empty because it'll be too dangerous to, to go out in public. This is, this is coming in the future. Notice the end of the verse. Isaiah gives the, the fundamental reason why the wrath of God would reign upon the people of Israel. He says they shattered the covenant. They rejected the testimonies. They, they show no regard for man. In other words, they must have thought God was bluffing in Deuteronomy. That he was joking when he listed curse after curse and terror after terror that would come upon them should they shatter the covenant and get in bed with idols. 
Like so many today, they thought that they could enjoy all the privileges of salvation and yet live selfish, self-centered, self-serving lives that make God a little footnote and treat the word of God like it's no big deal, which is exactly what they had done. And you just need to know that's where most Jews are today. Secular, unbelieving, rejected their Messiah, headed towards the tribulation. But you need to know also that there are hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of professing Christians in American churches who are in the exact same fearful predicament. Although Christian in name, in culture, in upbringing, and religious preference, they are actually missing the very thing that makes them a Christian, namely a new heart. In other words, they're not born again. They're not converted, although they think they are, because they don't understand the essence of authentic faith. And the essence of authentic faith is not sinless perfection, but it is thirsty submission to Jesus Christ. For far too long, we have tolerated a truncated gospel in America, a toothless gospel, one that has been stripped down to such palatable, man-centered felt needs that we forget that the gospel is a summons to repent and yield to the king. We forget that the gospel is about a savior who saves and forgives and cleanses. We forget that this is a savior who challenges us and changes us and convicts us and converts us and who is coming again to reign over us. Put it this way, the gospel is a call to stop drinking from the mud puddles of sin and to drink your fill from the fountain of living water. question is, have you believed this gospel? Have you repented and yielded to the king? Have you done so? Have you yielded to Jesus Christ as Lord and King and Savior and treasure of your soul? Because if you have not, I am the living Christ through me is summoning you to repent and yield to him in repentance and faith. Because I'm going to lie, and Isaiah is not going to lie, hard times are coming for the deceived and unbelieving. Verse 9, even the landscape, the land, the, the terrain, the geography will be demolished. Uh, look at the text there. These are not wasted comments. Lebanon, Sharon, Bashan, and Carmel. Do you know what those are? The most beautiful vacation destinations in the world in that day. Think Fiji, think Hawaii, think Bali, think Cancun. And yet one day, one day, all of them will be destroyed by the torch of God's anger and be unrecognizable. Not only those places, it's, it's the whole earth. Revelation 6, Revelation 8, Revelation 16 all reveal that, that the, the decimation of all creation and God, as God lays it naked and bare in the fires of his wrath. And then verse 10, notice Yahweh interrupts Isaiah and he speaks for himself. Now I will arise, says Yahweh. Now I will be exalted. Now I will be lifted up. What does he mean? What's the point? I think Yahweh interrupts. And he rises up from his throne as if to remind us all that the hell unleashed on the end of the age will be unleashed by him. Notice the end of the verse. He will be exalted and glorified, not in spite of the wrath, but precisely because of the wrath. And then verses 11 and 12, God addresses and warns the nations directly as if they were in the room. Look at the text. You will conceive chaff 
You will give birth to stubble. My wing like fire will consume you. The peoples will be burned to lime. Like thorns which are cut down, they will be kindled in the fire. And I think he means the plans. The evil plans that, that godless people and nations make for their own lives. And he calls it conceiving chaff and giving birth to stubble, meaning it's never going to work out for them. The secular ignoring, God ignoring world builds their lives out of the sticks and straw and stupid ideas like Darwinism and postmodernism and atheism and humanism and transgenderism and moralism and materialism and yet the end of verse 11 God will huff and God will puff and he will consume their sticks with his anger which is where we would be had God not rescued us by sovereign grace amen and I, and I know that you did not wake up this morning hoping just hoping that you would hear an extended treatment on the future tribulation to come at the end of the age. You did not ask for this. And yet in God's providence, this is what you need. And you can't deny that it's practical, can you? Because it is practical. And the reason why it's practical is because these are real people in the text. Maybe even people that you know. You might know people today who will endure and die in the tribulation and after that is hell. And so you see what this does is warrant very real and sober conversations with lost people, doesn't it? I mean, you, you understand this is very practical for us because this, this unleashes in our lives urgent, compassionate, honesty with lost people in rebellion to Jesus Christ. We need to be honest with people. Either this is true or it is not true. And if it is true, it should evoke a response. Real conversations. We need to be willing to take the risk and sound like crazy people. We need to be willing to declare the global wrath and judgment to come because that's not a scare tactic to manipulate people, although it is real. And it's not the only thing we say, but we should say it because they need to know that there is still time. There is still time in God's providence and his unbelievable infinite kindness. There is still time to repent and escape because for the time being, his arms are open wide and ready to receive them brings us to part three. Finally and fantastically to part three. Part three, which I'm calling the display of Messiah's kingdom in Zion and the world. The display of Messiah's kingdom in Zion and the world. Because you know, many people in the church today suffer with what I call eschatological cataracts. Eschatological cataracts. You know, cataracts is a clouding of the eyes, right? Make things look fuzzy and hazy and blurry and less colorful and less defined. And there is a corollary to that. There is eschatological cataracts, meaning that there is a clouding of our theology that makes the end times seem fuzzy and hazy and blurry and less defined. And this has not been good for the church. What I mean is we have been so warped by centuries of sloppy eschatology that we almost can't even wrap our heads around what the Bible actually says of what's going to unfold in the end. We tend to think of heaven, the eternal worship service. You ever hear that? Our default mode is some smoky, immaterial reality. Some quiet state of eternal contemplation. Shh. Togas and harps and clouds. And yet, none of that is in the text. None of it. None of it is in the Bible. And yet, we're so conditioned by this distorted theology that it makes the prophets and apostles' message of a kingdom on earth, on this earth, seem unfathomable 
and unimaginable. There's no way the Bible teaches that. But actually it does. It, it teaches that a lot. And what you have to understand is that while the blessings of that future kingdom are many and innumerable and profound and they will thrill our souls, there is one blessing in particular in the kingdom that will surpass and transcend them all. And it is when we will behold with our very own eyes the king in his beauty reigning in his splendor. And so very quickly, let's start at the end of the chapter, work our way backwards and culminate in the glory of the king. This is going to go fast. Buckle up. Here we go. Verse 24. Isaiah gives various descriptions of the future kingdom to come. Verse 24, he says, In the kingdom no one will say, I am sick. And those who dwell in it, in the kingdom, will be forgiven of iniquity. I take that literally. Sickness and sin will literally be eradicated by the king when he comes to reign. The scriptures are abundantly clear on this point. Christ will arrive to the planet in its present condition with all of its sadness and madness and terrors, both disease and depravity, and from the inside out, he will bring the planet back to its pristine pre-fall, paradise-like conditions. The pain you feel now, the malady that you just have to live with, the medication that you're on, the doctor's appointment that you have this next week, that weird, embarrassing paper revealing gown that they make you wear in the hospital, and even hospitals themselves will be gone in the kingdom. And that's just the beginning. Look at verses 20 through 23. And don't read this as a 21st century Gentile. Read this through the eyes of Israel with all the horrors that fill their tragic history. Look at the text. He says, see Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an undisturbed abode, a tent that will not be removed. Its stakes will not ever be pulled up and its cords will not be cut. I mean, do you see what Isaiah does here? He doesn't just describe what they will experience. He tells them to see it. See it with the eyes of faith that you will see with your physical eyes. What will you see? Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem. And notice that he calls Jerusalem a tent that won't be moved, whose stakes won't be pulled up, whose cords will not be cut. What is he talking about? And you see it, don't you? He, he digs deep in their cultural memory to the time after the Exodus when they traveled through the wilderness and the tabernacle was just a big giant tent with stakes and, and cords and they had to pack it up and haul it around the wilderness. And he's saying, you will not ever have to do that again. Jerusalem will be eternal, perpetual, and invincible. Verse 21, why? Why? What's going to happen? Yahweh will be there. Yahweh will be there incarnate in his son. And you look at the verse 21. Scholars are really baffled by verse 21. You notice that the scholars cannot seem to agree or figure out if the rivers or streams in that text are literal or metaphorical for the presence of God. Especially because Jerusalem doesn't have rivers. Especially ones big or wide enough or deep enough to hold ships to pass through. And yet I take it literally. I do, because we just have to leave open the possibility that Christ will bring about staggering transformations to the planet when he comes, because that's exactly what the prophets say again and again and again. And in fact, Psalm 46, Ezekiel 47, Joel chapter 3, and Zechariah 14:8 all say that when the Messiah returns, Jerusalem will be a city flowing with streams, which shouldn't surprise us at all. Because you remember, streams flowed out of the Garden of Eden, did they not? And I think that's exactly the point. Paradise will be regained. God will be with us. And then look down at verse 23, or look, yeah, look down, probably the most cryptic verse in the whole chapter. 
it's really strange. It sounds like scholars aren't sure whether to, to give it nautical or boat themes or military themes. And these other terms are used elsewhere in the chapter for military. So I think this is a military reference here. Verse 23, I think what this is describing are abandoned military camps where enemies, enemy armies long since conquered and killed by the king will lie empty and abandoned. I think the point is, the point is that invasion and war will be a thing of the past. Look up, skip up the verse 19. Enemies, scoundrels, terrorists, liars, and fools will be no more. Go up, verse 18, super intriguing. This is really interesting. Uh, Yahweh says, your heart will meditate on terror. And you will say, where is the one who counted? Where is the one who, who, who uh, weighed the treasure? Where is the one who counted the towers? What are you talking about, Isaiah? And you understand, those three titles, the one who weighs, the one who counts, the one who counts the towers, you know what that is? Those are all mil terms of military offices. Those are people who planned to invade other nations. And his point is, his point is, in the kingdom, invasions and war won't exist. And we'll show up to the kingdom being so accustomed to a world filled with evil and we will look around and wonder where the tyrants and terrorists are and be astounded that they don't exist anymore. There's other things to say. and That's what it is, church. A tiny little foretaste of the kingdom to come. And, and so that brings us back to our question at the beginning. If you could have all that, creation renewed, the nations redeemed, Israel restored, paradise regained, sickness and pain removed, Everyone reclining at the table, dining on food together, but Christ were not there. Could you still be happy? Could you be happy in the kingdom if Christ were not there? In one sense, the question is irrelevant. Because look at verse 17. Here it is, the crowning, culminating, climactic moment of the kingdom. Your Eyes will see the king in his beauty. And there it is. The pleasure of pleasures. The delight of all delights. The most glorious glory at the top of the heap is that you will see the king in his glory and the splendor of his majesty. No more faith, all sight. It'll be over. Your eyes will see him. You will, be, you will see him displayed and portrayed. And you know, we sing this every single Christmas, do we not? We sing it every single Christmas, joy to the world, the Lord will come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. No more let sins and sorrows grow, no thorns infest the ground. He will come to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. He will rule the world with truth and grace and make the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. That has effects in our lives. The, culminate, the culmination, the apex of the kingdom, it, it affects our lives in three ways. This is lightning fast. Number one, the goal and apex of the kingdom Seeing the king in his beauty, the goal and apex of the kingdom, shapes and defines the goal of our lives today. What I mean is, the same goal in the kingdom is the same goal today. The goal in the kingdom is to see the king in his beauty. The goal of your lives today is to see the king in his beauty. It's one and the same. And where you go to see the king in his beauty is in the sacred text of Holy Scripture. And you know, don't you, that seeing the beauty of Christ is the secret to your sanctification. When you are 
ravished by Christ, only then will you see your sin as repulsive. Number two. The goal and apex of the future kingdom frees us from all the idols that pull our gaze away from Jesus Christ. The goal and apex of the kingdom frees us from all the idols that pull our gaze away from Jesus Christ. And think of them, not all of them bad in themselves, but they can become that way. Comfort and success and career and security, materialism, health, safety, financial prosperity, and the praise and the approval of man. And don't you see anything that we must lose or suffer or give up for the sake of Christ will be made up ten thousand times over when we see the king in his beauty. Number three, the goal and apex of the kingdom clarifies and motivates our gospel proclamation. The king in his beauty clarifies and motivates our gospel proclamation. Don't you see, the payoff of the gospel is not merely forgiveness of sins. The prize of the gospel is not merely escape from hell. The punchline of the gospel isn't even getting to heaven or the kingdom as an end in itself. And those who would be happy in the kingdom if Christ will not, were not there will not be there in the kingdom. Because the gospel is not a way to get you to the kingdom. The gospel is a way to get us to the king. And so in your gospel conversations with the lost, never forget that the apex of your message and the apex of the kingdom are one and the same, namely that the happy ever after is to see the king in his beauty. Let's pray. Oh Christ, how we long to see that. We look with eyes of faith now, and it does fulfill us, it does thrill us, it does excite us, it does help us, and it helps us more to, to know, O oh Christ, that one day we will see with physical eyes. We will see in you in the full spectrum and display of your majesty and uncreated supremacy ruling on a throne, doing what Adam should have done but could not possibly do, and to see you in your moment, in your kingdom, on your throne, ruling all things, making all things the way they ought to be. And so help us, Lord. Help us to be a faithful people who scour your sacred text, looking for glimpses of your glory that might sustain us until we get there. Help us, O oh Lord, to scour the sacred text, to see uh, ever-increasing glimpses and, and pictures and portrayals of your majesty that might sustain us through our current trials. Help us to be a people who are profoundly eschatological in the sense that we are sustained and strengthened because we know that one day it will be the happily ever after. And it's in your mighty and matchless name we pray.